0: Open your uh, copy of God's Word to uh, Deuteronomy 6. I want to kind of walk you through this passage this morning. In the days of Moses, God raised up Moses. He took Moses back to Egypt, and He raised up 6 million-plus people. He said, Moses, I want you to lead these people out of Egypt. I want this to be my national church. My people, and I want to enter into a covenant with these people. I will be faithful to them as their God if they will be faithful to me as their people. Well, they didn't keep up their end of the deal. They broke covenant. And so as a result of breaking the covenant, these six million plus people, everybody over the age of 20 died in the wilderness, consequence to sin, disobedience. Deuteronomy is the book that's teaching the next generation that has spent the last 20 years basically seeing a funeral every day. Burying dad and mom, dad and mom, somebody's dad or mom. 20 years in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, everyone over age 20. And then steps onto the scene again Moses. And Moses says, time for me to address the second generation That's where we're jumping in at Deuteronomy chapter 6. What would you say, what would be your sermon to this group who's seen the unfaithfulness of dad and mom and now are being promised again the promised land? The book of Deuteronomy is addressing that issue. Let me just walk through the first nine verses, then we'll skip to the end of the chapter But. Starting in Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that uh, you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes. And his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. The first thing we see here is God's very adamant about teaching through Moses that this second generation needs to be faithful. And the way to be faithful is to obey God's rules, God's commandments, God's statutes. He keeps going over this. And he says, not only do I want you to obey them. But I want you to do it for three generations. Did you catch the three-generational view? I want you to do it. I want your sons to do it. And I want your sons' sons to do it. I want all of us to have a three-generational view. You are not on this planet for yourself. We are here for us, for our children, and for our children's children. And all three generations are being commanded here through the fathers... To obey God's commandments. Second, let's see verse three. It says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. There's a relationship here between God and his people. So I don't want you to be faithful. I want you to do what you do as unto God, because if you've got that relationship, God's going to be faithful. He's going to pour out blessings to you and your children and your children's children. And then the third thing he hits them with, verse 4: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love. Don't miss that. This is what you start with. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So there's an understanding. Not only have this relationship with God, but it's a, it's a relationship with you. Love him with all that is within you. And then the command to parents, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So there's a possession of the the word of God that's supposed to be so real. It's like it's on your, your head. It's on your arms. It's, it's, it's on your body somehow. It's on your house. You, you see that the Word of God is treasured everywhere you turn. You possess it and then you talk about it when you're walking to and from home and you talk about it when you rise up in the morning and you talk about it when you go to bed at night. I want to put this into four categories for you. What is, first of all, what is the work of life? Second, what is the manner in which we are to live life? Third, what's the essence of life? And then four, what is the greatest possession in life? Now, if you get what I'm saying here, you should be able to ask your teenagers these questions. You're asking the next generation, and they're going to ask the next generation. But ask the teenagers, parents, this question. Can you tell me, son, daughter, what's the work of life? What's what's your primary work in life? If they can answer that, you've done a good job in parenting. Second, I want to ask you, What's the manner in which you live life? If they can answer that from God's perspective, you've done a good job in parenting. Third question, what is the essence of life? And if they can answer that question, good job in parenting. Again, what would God say the essence of life is? And then fourth, what does God say is the greatest possession in life? If you could own this, what would it be? And if they can answer that question, then you've done a great job in parenting. That's and How do you explain verses 7, 8, 9? It says you're supposed to be talking to this stuff. When you rise up, when you walk, when you lay back down. The greatest work in life is obedience. You are to obey, do the commandments, do the statutes, keep the rules. It's the greatest work God's given us to do here. Second, the manner in which you do that work matters to God. I want you to do it as though you are a steward of mine. Stewardship is crucial to God. Third, what's the essence of life? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment, this is great, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of why you are here. And then what would be the greatest possession? And you have this illustration, really, more than a specific word in verses 7 through 9. But he says, the possession, what I want you to possess, what I want on your homes, what I want on your body, what I want in your heart, is the Word of God. And you can pick it up uh, over in verse 25. It will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do this commandment before the Lord our God. Um, Not only pick it up there, uh, I mentioned this last week quickly in passing. Deuteronomy 47, I believe that's right. Let me see if I'll get there. Well, that's going to be hard if there's not 47 chapters in Deuteronomy. I'll get there. Deuteronomy 32, verse 47 says this. It's no empty word for you. Talking about the word of God. No empty word. But your very life, and by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Moses' sermon is a lot longer than mine. I'm just giving you one chapter. He just goes on and on and on. I don't know anything about preachers preaching long. But he does it. And he just goes on. So I'm, I'm trying to give you... His summary just keeps coming back up. Your greatest possession in life is righteousness. It will be righteousness unto you. Now, let's unpack that. Let's look at each of those briefly. We'll understand more and more. But as I struggle with good parenting, God, you know, I say, God, what is it I'm supposed to be talking about? when I rise up, when I go down? What is it I'm supposed to be conveying? How do I know when I get to the end of the road that I have succeeded as a parent? And I think you can get from this chapter, God said, well, did you talk about and tell them about the primary work they should be doing? Did you tell them about the manner in which they should live their lives? Did you tell them about the essence of life, love for God and others? Did you tell them about righteousness? What enables them to be right with God and to go from this earth into the glories of heaven? Let's look at the first. The work of life is obedience to God. Sometimes we get so confused with church rituals and we think God wants us just to go through the rituals of going to church and Sunday school and Bible reading and prayer. And then we're reminded, 1 Samuel 15, 22, no, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is the work. It's not the rituals. The rituals have their place and they're very important, but it's obedience that God is seeking from us. You see that in, in Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2 that I've read. Um, you see it over and over in this passage. Um, verse 24 says, The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. And it's for our good, always. Commanded us to do this. It reminded me of an Andy Griffith episode, um A lot of one-liners in Andy Griffith that uh, still stick with me today. Uh, But This is one where uh, Barney Fife, Deputy Fife, is screaming uh, to a couple prisoners that are in the uh, Mayberry jail cell. He says, here at The Rock, and he called his jail The Rock, here at The Rock we have two rules. And you need to memorize them so you can say them in your sleep. Rule number one is obey All rules. And I thought, why do you have to say that? But I love it because it, it describes the essence of what's happening here. Obedience to the rules matter. If I give you rules and you don't keep them, what's with that? You're not doing what God wants. You're doing what you want. If it's not what God wants, if it's not obedience... To the rules, and God's given us the Ten Commandments. God's given us His statutes and His rules. We have a series of choices all the time in life. What are we going to do? Do we choose to do what we want, or do we choose to do what God wants? These people in Deuteronomy 6, they have a living, visual, constant reminder of rule breaking. They've had so many funerals. I mean, you, you can do the math. How, how long would it take to bury two, three, four million people? How long is it going to take to bury that many people? And, and they're doing that, wandering in the wilderness, looking for another place in the earth to plant another body. Why are we doing this? Why are we burying so many people? Because they didn't keep the rules. They didn't obey. God told us what to do, and they didn't do it. Um, you know, I'm not sure we get the importance of this. God says, I, I want to see my commandments honored and kept. Are you doing it? Um, I've never heard anybody answer this question according to the Scripture, the question is, what do you do for a living? You were to ask me, surprise me with that, I'd answer it the same way you do. Well, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor. What do you do? I'm an electrician, I'm a mechanic, I'm an architect, I'm a doctor, I'm a dentist. You know, the list goes on. I'm a homemaker, I'm a teacher. What do you do for a living? Oh, great question. What is the work I do for a living? I obey God. What? The scripture tells me that if I obey God, it will be good for me always. I will live. This is what I do to live. You didn't ask me what I did to earn money. You asked me what I did for a living. For a living, I obey God. It's the primary work I do. It is obedience to God, He's given me His commands, and He's promised me life. He's promised me a good life. In response to that obedience, what uh, we want to do, you know, we we want certain things for our church, certain things for our home, certain things for our life. What are our choices? We could justify our choices a whole lot better if we were choosing our choices or making our choices based on God's commands. Is this command, is, is, is this something I'm doing because it helps me obey God, helps me honor Him, it helps me honor my parents, it helps me not lie, it helps me not steal, it helps me protect my marriage. You see, you're going through the rules of God and you're making choices all day long to either obey God or obey yourself and your world the work of life is obedience to god second i want you to see the manner of living is as stewards verse 23 and 24 says and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us god's the bringer god's the giver Everything that we have comes down from him. He's given it. He's created it. We must respond. You've got that whole parable in the New Testament that God's given the uh, people in, in the world certain gifts. And he's coming back to see how did we do. And it's all about stewardship. Did we take care of what he's given us on earth according to what would please him? Have we been stewards? Do we realize he gave us what we have? A great example of that is if, if you're a, a parent, you've had to answer this question. but Well, maybe not, depending on how you keep the rules, I guess. But at some point, I used to ask the question, why do I have to clean up my room? Why do I have to make my bed? I mean, I don't get it. I'm just going to get back in it. So, so why do I have to make up my bed? Why do I have to clean up my room? I'm really the only person in my room. I have my own room. So why do I have to clean it up? And what's the right answer? The right answer is, we must take care of what God has given us. It's not your room. It's not my room. It's not your parents' room. It's not even our house. It has been given to us. To take care of for another. That's called stewardship. To take care of what God has given us. That's what God wants us to do. Every time we get a dollar, the question is, what does God want us to do? Every decision then becomes a spiritual decision. We can spend this dollar. We can save this dollar. We can give this dollar away. We can invest this dollar. But what does God want us to do with this dollar? What does God want us to do with our room? What does God want us to do with our house? What does God want us to do with our car? What does God want us to do with our marriage, our life, our relationships? It's about being a steward of all that is for God. Stewardship is the manner in which we are to live our lives. And then we're always living our lives respectful in significant ways because we are doing it for someone greater than, than ourselves. The purpose of a budget, think about that. The purpose of a budget is not to keep you out of trouble. The purpose of a budget is to allocate what God has given us for God's purposes. How does God want us to be responsible with what He's blessed us with? How do we respond to Him? Again, He may want us to spend it and enjoy it. He may want us to save it or invest it. He may want us to turn it into twice as much. Ask God. It's different for different people, but the manner in which you do it is the same. It's stewardship. You're doing it for another, and it's for our survival, for our good, the Scripture says, always. God wants us to survive. So the work of life is obedience. The manner of living life is stewardship. Let's look at the third. The essence of life is love. When you... Let me read some of Deuteronomy 6, verse 20 and down, and I want to ask you, you can't understand these words without assuming something. What, what do you have to assume to understand Deuteronomy 6, verse 20 and following? When your son asks you in time, I mean, so you got to have to, you have to have a kid, right? You have, you assume you've got a kid at some point. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules? Well, you have to assume there that he's been taught the statutes, the rules, the commandments. You have to assume the earlier part of Deuteronomy that you've been talking about these things. Over and over and over. And at some point, you've been te- talking about them so much. Your kid says, why are you keep doing this? What's the meaning of giving me these statutes, these standards? I'm trying to teach you, son, about how to live your life. And I'm trying to teach you the primary work of life. It goes on, verse 21. Then you shall say to your son... We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous uh, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes, and he brought us out from there, and he might bring us in and give us the land which he swore to give you to our fathers. This is an analogy when you get into the New Testament of redemption. Redemption. God took us out of bondage, took us out of slavery, and man, did you see what he did? He he did these miracles, grievous miracles. We called them ten plagues of Egypt, but God was doing it. And He was doing all of that to rescue us, to allow us to escape, to take us to the promised land. God was purchasing us to be His own people and to raise us up as His. He chose us. So when your son asks you, what's the essence of life? What what is it all about? Your response is, it's about love, don't you think? That God so loved the world, so loved us, that He gave us this special status as His children. He gave us this special place. He gave us this special promise. He's giving us redemption who were slaves, who were destined to nothing but agony. And He threw the agony on others and gave us blessing. The essence... What all this means is love. To love God, and He wants us to love one another. Let me show you the the New Testament, same kind of analogy. Look at Second Timothy chapter two. 2 Timothy two. I, I, I love how this is described because it brings in Satan and. Bondage to, to maybe a different level. 2 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 24, says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, loving one another, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And here's what I want you to see. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape. From the snare of the devil and being captured by him to do his will. When you are born onto this planet, you are captured by Satan to do his will. He puts you on this world, he's the ruler of this world, and he puts you into his prison. He says, You're ensnared to the devil. Well, how do do I get out of that bondage? How do I get out of that snare? How do I escape? He says, the way out is repentance. How do I get repentance? Well, repentance has to be granted. He says, perhaps God will grant you. He will give you the gift of repentance. And when you repent, you turn from your sin, you embrace Christ, and Christ opens the door that's ensnared you. He's, he frees you from bondage, allowing you to walk in a new life, in freedom, not held back by Satan and his schemes and Satan and your sin. The Egyptians were seeing that in a physical realm. We're in bondage, and God is about redemption. What then does all of this mean? Well, it means to love God. God so loved you. That you would love him and his church and his people. And there's many places we could go for that. But I just want you to see it. The essence of it is here in the scriptures that we need to love God. We need to love one another. We need to be set free. And we You're in bondage, friends. You say, well, I can't love God. I don't want to love God. People have said to me, I choose not to love God. I say, well, you don't have choice. What do you mean? You choose not to? And they said, "I do have a choice. I could love God if I want." I said, "Okay, prove it. Love God." And they don't. So no, I'm not going to do that. Why not? I'm just not going to do it. No, the reason you're not going to do it because you can't. Well, why can't I then? Because you're in bondage. You're in jail. You are captured by Satan. You must do his will. You don't have the freedom to do God's will to love Him until He frees you. Well, what should I do? That sounds hopeless, not hopeless at all. God says if you trust in Christ, if you believe in Him, He gives you the freedom to be a child of God. To as many as receive Him, John 1:12. to them He gives the right to be, the power, the authority to walk free, to be living as a child of God, to love God. God loves us. Uh, John 17, this is life. What is life? What is the essence of life? Here's another way maybe to look at it. John 17 speaks about it as well. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is it, that you know God as your Lord, as your Redeemer, as the one who grants you repentance. And life in Christ. Um, think about it another way. Romans thirteen eight. Owe no man anything but love. What will we owe love then? Do we give love to one another? Or do we give love to God? Do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? We know these things. The essence of life is Love. Now, let's get back to the parenting analogy that's so strong in Deuteronomy 6. Are we parenting this? Are we teaching this to our sons, our sons' sons, and our sons' sons' sons? The three generations. There's a little seven year old girl who read this story, came up to her dad one night. Dad came home late, 11 o'clock. Girl's been staying up, waiting on dad. As soon as dad comes in, she walks into the room. He's already cut on the TV, thinking, oh, I just need 10 minutes to unwind and I'm going to bed. And She walks in says, what are you doing up? says, dad, we need to talk. And he immediately thinks, did, did mom put you up to this? And the, the little girl said, no, mom's asleep. But we need to talk. He says, okay, and turns off the TV. What do we need to talk about? He says, dad, I'm just not as close to you as I am to mom. What do you mean you're not as close to me? As, you're as close to me as you are to mom. She says, nope, I'm not how do you know this? She said, well, because I say things to mom and share things with mom I don't ever share it with you. And dad says, well, then what's it going to take for me to be as close to you as you are to mom? And this is what I thought was cute from the little seven-year-old. The little seven-year-old says, well, I think about 15 minutes. 15 minutes, doing what? She said, maybe just talking and playing. The seven-year-old got it. We need time. It's about time to love. Do you have time for your kids? Do you have time for your marriage? Do you have time for your neighbor? Do you have time for God? You can't love them with all your heart if you're not invested in them. You're not giving time to the relationship. It doesn't take much, but that's the why we are here. We so much are giving our time to our work and our hobbies, and we're missing the relationships, the two primary, God and his creation that he wants us to spend time with. Fifteen minutes a day might be all it really takes. It's the essence of life. It's why we take the first day of every week to give time to God. And to love God, and to praise God, and to adore God. Now let's get to the last one. The greatest possession in life is righteousness. The words in Deuteronomy 6, verse 25. I've read it already. It will be righteousness for us. What must we do for this righteousness? Let's just go ahead and make this real clear right at the beginning. The passage is all about keeping God's word, right? And obeying all statutes, and if you obey all the statutes, it will be righteousness. Who in this room can do that? None of us. I can't do it. You can't do it. Nobody's ever done it, except for one. That's Christ. So let's make it real clear. Christ is our righteousness. First Corinthians, if you want a verse, 1 Corinthians uh, 1, I think it's verse 30, it says, Christ is our sanctification, our holiness. Christ is our righteousness. Only Christ is righteous. That's why Christ came to earth. Because mankind's never been righteous. Never kept all the statutes and commands. Christ didn't just come to die on a cross. Christ came to live 33 perfect years. Keeping all of God's commands. And he even tells people, I I must do this to fulfill all commands righteousness. I have come to be righteous. I have come to keep all the commands because my people have not been able to do so. And then the glorious exchange takes place. Let me read it. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 because it's so powerful it's become one of my most treasured uh, verses in all of scripture 2nd corinthians 5 and i can quote it to you but i want to give you time to look it up too i want you to have it 2nd corinthians 5 verse 21 for our sake he made him speaking of christ to be sin who knew no sin he didn't know any sin he's righteous he's kept all the law He made him, God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an exchange. What do you bring to the salvation table? You bring the same thing I bring, sin. That's the only thing we have. When you come before a holy God, what do you bring Him? What do you offer Him? We can offer Him nothing but ourselves, our sinful selves. We can offer Him nothing but sin. Christ comes to the table. He offers Him righteousness. Father, I've kept Your will. I came to do Your will, and I've perfectly kept Your will. I know no sin. Here's the deal. I want you to take my righteousness and I want you to give it to David. God says, What do I get in exchange? Sin. I'll take his sin. You give him my righteousness. It didn't get any better than that. I earned nothing, I worked for nothing, and I got everything. I got righteousness. I got something I did not earn. Something I did not work for. Um, More important than anything else I have ever possessed on earth, on this planet, is the righteousness of Christ. More important than anything I will ever possess is this deposit of righteousness that has been given to me and as i was thinking about that just trying to to grasp the weight of righteousness given me you know what are you trying to, what are you trying to get in life what are you working for what are you living for well i'm working to obey god i'm doing it in a manner as a steward for god i'm making sure it's all about love and not about the task, that it's about a relationship of loving God and loving His church. Well, what do you hope to gain from all of that? A nice house? A nice car? Nice things? Nice clothes? Nice life? No. What I hope to gain from all of that is righteousness. The greatest thing I want in life is is righteousness as as I saw that in the text, and I see it all the way through the scriptures. That my greatest possession, my greatest treasure, is Christ. You know, Jesus told a parable. He says, "If a man saw a a great treasure in a field, and nobody else knew it was there, he'd go sell everything he had to get that field, because in that field is the greatest treasure." Christ, and I meditate on it this week, and I said, God, I don't think I fully embrace the weight of this yet, and I said, how will our church embrace the preciousness Of having righteousness so that they live for, they work for, they pray for, they talk about it when they walk and when they get up and when they go down, that the greatest thing you could earn. See, we don't do this. We don't do it. We tell our kids, our kids somehow have this notion, mom and dad will be proud of me when I possess good grades. Mom and dad will be proud of me when I make the the team. Mom and dad will be proud of me when I make the goal. Mom and dad will be proud of me when I get the job. Mom and dad will be proud of me when I finally have kids and raise them. Mom and dad will finally be proud of me. They don't get it. No, mom and dad is thrilled through the roof if you have the righteousness of Christ. You possess Jesus. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for my grandkids. That's what I want for the next generation. Is that they grow up possessing Christ as their greatest treasure. And be willing to give up everything else for it. It'd be kind of like waking up Christmas morning. And we say... and. Some giver says to you, We got your gift, it's out in the driveway. It's too big to be in the house. And you're thinking, Yes. You know. And you go out into the driveway, and you can kind of see it's got wheels. Ha, oh, this is a good sign. And you start unwrapping it. And as you unwrap the gift, it is an $18 million gift. Bugatti and you say I I could never pick it up I could there's no way I could ever have afforded this for a car but I don't have a problem at all saying I now possess it that it's mine it's been given to me I didn't work for it I didn't earn it, but I am sure excited to drive it around. Do we really get that when it comes to Christ's righteousness? He has given us something. It's too big for us to pick up. It's too weighty for us really to comprehend. It's too much for us ever to afford And yet, we possess it. It's ours, completely ours. And no one can take it from us. God has given us something we didn't earn, didn't work for. And it's the one thing that gets us from this life to the next. It gets us into the glories of heaven. I see this all the time. Believers, Christians say this. I've been thinking about it. Said that my greatest value, my values... It's faith and family. Who do you need to vote for? Now, vote for this person. They got faith and faith and family values. That's our greatest value. I'm thinking. I'm not sure that's exactly right. I understand what we're saying. Faith and family are valuable, but that's not what I value most. See, my faith is weak. It's often shaken. I'm like the the dad in the Bible that says, God, I do believe, but help my unbelief. My faith gets shaken. It gets weak at times. It's not something of great substance. It's a gift given to me. I exercise it, but it's not what I cherish most. When I get to heaven, God's not going to say, David, before I let you in, I want to examine your faith. I want to examine how you believe. Doesn't do that. Doesn't examine our faith. He examines what we have. What do you possess? David, before I let you in, I want to examine what you have. It appears to me you don't have anything to show for yourself but the righteousness of Christ. And that's enough. It's always enough. It's sufficient for every bad deed. Christ has washed me in his blood. He has covered every sin. And he takes my soul from this body. And he clothes it in the righteous garments of Christ. So that I stand before God as holy. As he is holy. Righteous as he is righteous. Do we get that? The greatest possession on earth is righteousness. If you don't have it, you can't get it. Except you believe in Christ. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. And he who knew no sin will take your sin. And in exchange give you his righteousness. Unbelievable. Let's pray together. Father, we live life sometimes in such a trivial manner. Never talking about the true work, the true manner, the essence, or the greatest possession. Have mercy. Forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Father for those who have been wandering through the wilderness of bondage in bondage to do Satan's will we ask that you would grant them escape grant them redemption should they cry out even here for faith and repentance grant O Lord please this mercy that they too may walk in this new life you've given us That they may know its essence. They may spend the rest of their days loving you and loving your people. That they would have a life of value and worthiness to enter into the glories of heaven covered with Christ's righteousness. We ask for this mercy and this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.